You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8 this morning. Romans 8. We're going to look at verses 28, 29, and 30 today. It seems that in our our study of this great chapter, uh, the verses seem to get... Uh, sweeter and sweeter and richer and richer um, of God's uh, great word to us. John Piper, in his book, Future Grace, writes this about this passage. He says, if you live inside this massive promise, your life is more solid and stable than Mount Everest. Once you walk through the door of love, into the massive, unshakable structure of Romans 8:28, everything changes. Then comes into your life, he says, stability and depth and freedom. You're, you simply can't be blown over anymore. The confidence that a sovereign God governs for your good, all the pain and all the pleasure you'll ever experience is an incomparable refuge and security and hope and power in your life. Such good words, a great introduction to this. And of course, the opposite, of true, the opposite is true as well of Romans 8.28. There's only outside of it, there's only despair. Look at this great passage this morning. Paul writes these words, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called, and those whom He called, He also justified, and those whom He justified, He also glorified. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You this sure and steady foundation of Christ, His uh, great gospel and that we just sang about, Lord. And we're thankful that He has given us His Word here in Romans 8, so encouraging to us, Lord. And we pray now for ears to hear it and for hearts that would receive it, Lord. And so please illumine us, our minds, by your Spirit to understand it, that it might be planted deep inside of us and affect the change that you want in our hearts and lives. And I pray that you would use me today. I pray that you would increase and I would decrease and your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Paul begins this passage with those words, and we know, and we know. And in many ways, that's been the theme of this chapter. Uh, These are things that Paul wants us to know, and he wants us to have confidence uh, in these things, that because we are in Christ, we will be kept by Christ in that salvation for all of eternity. That's the great assurance that he's speaking of here, an assurance of salvation, and we can know this with confidence, he says. And yet, in verse 26, Paul acknowledges there are things that we don't know. We talked a little bit about that last week, such as what we ought to pray for. And uh, if if we're honest, 
this is uh, where we live in the Christian life, between this tension of what we know and, and at times the things that we don't know. Uh, we know the reality, he says in verse 22, the groaning of our suffering, and, and yet we don't always grasp all of the details uh, of, of what God is doing. We know of this glory to come that he says is incomparable, that will outweigh any suffering of the present, and yet in the moment at times it's difficult to, uh, to have a, an understanding of that, but, but he tells us that God's Spirit has been given to us to help us in this and to intercede for us with perfect prayers. And then Paul says, there's something else that we know in all of this. And this is like, this is like the best part of this. This is the solid ground. He says, there's a solid ground. There's a strong foundation that undergirds all of this, that gives us a footing when, when it feels like we may be in situations or circumstances when the very earth is moving under our feet, where, where we're uncertain and fearful. There, there's a truth that is here, a promise that is here that is so wonderful. The, the truth he communicates here has been likened, some have called it a pillow on which every Christian can rest their weary head at night. And if you know this, your life is more solid and stable than Mount Everest. So what is it that we're to know? Well, a couple of things. First of all, we know, the first thing he wants us to know is the providence of God. The providence of God. And that's the truth of verse 28. He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to to His purpose. Contained in that great verse uh, is uh, what John Stott calls unshakable convictions. And that's true. These are unshakable convictions that we know no matter what else is going on in our lives. We know this, he says. Beginning first with the truth that God is at work. God is at work. When he says all things work together for good, it's clear that is true because God is working them. He's not saying that these things come together by accident or, or, or happenstance or, or just, you know, in some way it's just going to all fit together. No, God is doing this. God is working. He's working ceaselessly, tirelessly, and, and purposefully in the life of the believer. Douglas Moo wrote this. He says, it's the sovereign guidance of God that is presumed as the undergirding and directing force behind all the, the events of life. And our sufferings that Paul's been talking about and our groanings uh, in the times when we don't even know what to pray for, God is working. And in the good times too, he's at work. There's nothing in our lives that takes place or that takes God by surprise. There's nothing that takes place apart from His sovereignty, apart from His watch care over our lives. And there's nothing that can happen that can undo or destroy His eternal purposes for His people. Nothing that can separate us from His love. He's working. Secondly, God is at work, he tells us, for the good of his people. 
for the good. And we'll talk about this more in just a moment, but let us just note here from the outset that the reason that God is working for good is because God is good. Amen, church? He is good. And the fact that He is good means that all of His works are good. Everything He does is for the good of His people, which ultimately in this passage is our salvation and our complete salvation from beginning to end, all the way home to when we get to glory with with Him. Now, Paul is not saying here in this verse that all things feel good, right? We know that. Because often we, we may not feel that God is doing good at all. Or we may not feel that what's happening to us, that these things do not feel good. We may feel exactly the opposite. And many times we can't even see the good in the particular moments that we are in or even understand it. But Paul said, the text simply says here, we know it to be good. We know it because we know that God is good. And God is working all things for good. Now, the the third truth, God works for good, he says, in all things. In all things. Again, that doesn't mean that all things are good. But rather, the, the effect of all things, the outcome of all things, he says. Paul is not saying that sickness and suffering and persecution are good. On the, on the contrary, there, there are evil things in our world, right, that we would never call good. I mean, it, and we know that. Boyce writes this, hatred is not love. We know that. Death is not life. Grief is not joy. And the world is full of evil. And, and sometimes Christians, uh, the, the bad things, the worst things happen to, to Christian people. It happens. We live in this fallen world, and there are distinctions here. But here's what Paul is saying, is that God is so powerful that He can bring good even out of evil things that happen. Even the negative things that happen to you. Even the hurtful, horrible things. There's nothing that is beyond His overruling His overriding scope, if you will, the scope of His providence in our lives. In the Old Testament, you remember the story of Joseph. Lord willing, we'll look at that story uh, the first of the year on Wednesday nights. But Joseph, you remember, was abandoned for dead by his own brothers, sold into slavery, later on falsely accused, imprisoned for many years over something that he did not do. And yet he was able to say to his brothers, you remember that episode there in Genesis when he tells them, you guys, you meant this for evil in my life, but God meant it for good. From the smallest details to the largest events, God is working all things together for good. Amen, church? Isn't that wonderful? Fourth, and this is important, God works for the good of those who love him. Right? That's what it says. And we know that for those who love God, for those, all things work together for good. That's, that's important. To whom does this promise apply? Is this promise for everybody? It's not what it says. It's true that God does rule over everything and everyone. 
Believers and unbelievers alike, and we see that throughout the story of, of the Scriptures, but, but the providential care and the good that he's talking about here, that Paul is talking about here, is different in the case of believers. This verse is addressed to Christians. This is not a promise that, that, that all things work together for the good of all people. It's a promise that it works together for God's people. And, and that's especially apparent, too, when we're thinking about the word good and what does this mean? We're talking about the salvation, right? It makes sense. That's what he's been talking about. That's the context. This is a promise to those who are saved. God is working all things together for their good, he says. They're also described in that final phrase as those, he says, who are called according to his purpose. His purpose. Notice the language there, called. Those who are called, those who are saved according to his purpose, his purpose. Now, Paul is not saying that everything works for the good and you get to make up your own good. Um, no, this good that God works in our lives is according to his purpose. His purpose, not our purpose, his. I hope you've come to realize this truth. It's a hard truth to realize and uh, that, that when it comes down to it, that you and I have no idea what is really good for ourselves. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson reminds us that our parents used to remind us, of, uh, remind us of this truth. We might have said some things as kids like, you know, we really want this, or we really want that, or we'd like to go to this place, or we'd like to go to that place. And our parents, they stepped in because they knew better, right? They had more experience, more wisdom. How much more true is that of God, church, when it comes to what is good for us in our lives? God, who is infinitely wise, who knows the end from the beginning, the alpha and the omega, this God, our God, promises to work all things together for good for those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose, His purpose. Someone might say something like, what about the bad things that happened to me that aren't my fault? Or what about bad things that happened to me that, that are my fault? There's probably plenty of those. Or what about the bad things that happened to others, whether it was my fault or, or not? Look at what the text says. Paul says, all things, doesn't he? All means all. God promises to work it all together for good in the end of things. And though we may not be able to see it now, though we may not be able to understand it in the moment, one day we will glorify God for all that He has done in our lives. And we will see it clearly. What a promise. That's an amazing doctrine, isn't it? We know it, He says. And we know. And you can understand why some people have called this a a, a, a pillow to, to uh, lay your, your head down on at night because you think about it, no matter what happens to you in this life, you can rest on the good providence of your faithful and good God. You can rest in it. It, it leads us to another question, though, perhaps a deeper question to think about, that if God works everything together at the right time and in the right place, and in the right life for good, then what is this good? 
that he is talking about here, the good that is the believer's final destiny. What is, we might ask, this purpose of God? That's the second thing I want you to notice that Paul refers to at the end of verse 28. All things work together for the good of of, of those who are, are called according to his purpose. What is this good? What is this purpose? that he's talking about. There's much that we don't know in in the moment of things. Uh, So many details we don't understand in this life. Remember, we don't even know what to pray for at times. There's much we don't know. But Paul says, let me share with you something that you can know. And it is something uh, of an eternal perspective of what God is doing. An eternal perspective. What is the good that God is bringing about in our lives? What is this purpose, his purpose, that we have been called? He answers that in verse 29. For, there's the connecting word, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined, and here's the purpose, to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. There's the purpose. God is creating for Himself a a family, a family for Himself. He's creating a family around the, the elder brother, He calls him here, who is our Lord Jesus Christ. And His great purpose is to conform us into the likeness of His Son, Jesus Christ. Paul has been laying the groundwork for this the whole chapter, right? It's not that surprising. You remember back in verse 4, he has called us uh, there to walk not according to the flesh, but according to the, the Spirit. You remember we talked about how he is working in us to shape us and change us so that we would walk like our Heavenly Father, so that we would have the same gait that he has, so that, our, our, we would have a, uh, that the world would look at us and be able to say, oh yeah, she walks like her father. He walks like his father, like his elder brother, Jesus Christ. He has his mannerisms. He has his character. Paul is saying, you see where all of this is leading? It's leading us to this great uh, destiny that ultimately you will bear. You and I will bear the likeness of Jesus Christ, and it will be clear in our lives that Jesus is our elder brother. He's creating for us this family for Himself in the likeness of His Son. And God is working everything in your life towards this good, towards this purpose. That's it. All of the bad. All of the good. All of the sorrows. All of the griefs. All of the joys. All of the circumstances. The persecution all of it. He's working towards this. At the end of the day, the only thing that will last forever in your life is that which is like Jesus Christ. He's chipping it all away. That's why it's so painful, isn't it, church? God is chiseling it away, making a family, a holy people, In the likeness of His Son, He is determined to make us like His Son. And so He providentially determines that all things will work together towards this good. And your life, my life, 
This is how the gospel, we would say at the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 16, this is how the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This is the power. Paul, how Paul describes this is, is really astonishing here in what he says. Because he tells us there is, a, there is an order, there's an intentionality, there's an order in the way in which this gospel comes to us and reshapes us. And it's quite mind-blowing when you step back and think about it, this divine order in which God is working to produce this in our lives. He tells us there, verse 29, this order, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. And those whom He predestined, He also, verse 30, called. Those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. This beautiful order. One theologian called this the family secret, if you will, the Christian family, the family secret that only those who know God are able to participate. William Perkins called this the five links of a golden chain. And it's as if God, Paul is tracing God's good and saving purposes through these five stages or these links of this chain together, all going all the way back to eternity past, to all the way to its consummation in eternity forward in, in, in glory with us. His point here is not to provide, by the way, I think, a complete picture, because you notice in the stages of things, he doesn't say everything that's involved in salvation, does he? He doesn't mention at all about faith, doesn't say anything about repentance as a part of our salvation. He's already said some of those things in earlier chapters. He's going to speak more about it again in Romans 10, but here his emphasis is to highlight God's invincible purposes in salvation. That's what he's defining, his purpose. God foreknew, he says. God predestines. God calls. God justifies. God glorifies. In other words, this is, this is how rock-solid our salvation is. This is where all of this is headed. This is why you can be assured that if you have Christ and you have His Spirit living in you, that nothing can hinder God's saving purpose and plan for your life. Nothing. It's a beautiful thing. Paul says first that God foreknew. Notice that phrase, verse 29, for those whom He foreknew. There's a lot to say about this, but we notice just some basic things that Paul there is not talking about God seeing what we will do in the future. That's not what that text says. It's not, a, it's not even a foreknowledge of actions. He doesn't say God, God knew what we, He would foreknew what we would do. He's speaking about it's a foreknowledge of a person, right? To those whom He foreknew. He's saying that before you and I knew God, He knew us. That's staggering, isn't it? And this knowledge, this, it's not just a, a, a cognitive type of knowledge like knowing about someone, but whether the word means a, that he knew in a personal, loving, intimate relationship. 
before we knew him. John Murray put it so beautiful. He says, he writes that the word know there, for know, is, is practically synonymous with love. For those whom he foreknew means for those whom he foreloved. He loved us beforehand. That's what he's saying. He loved us beforehand. First John 4.19, John will tell us later on that we love because, what does it say? He first loved us. He, he tells us that, doesn't, doesn't he? The, the eternal God foreknew, foreloved us from, from all eternity. Again, I, I hope you know that, that in, this, in what Paul is emphasizing here, that, that your faith Hear this, that your faith is not the ground of your salvation. You're not saved because of your faith. The Bible says you are saved by your faith or through faith. Paul said that back in chapter 4. He'll say it again in chapter 10. But, but faith is not the ground of our salvation. God's eternal love is the ground of our salvation. Do you realize the footing, the, found, the, the strength of that foundation, friend? He loved us beforehand, uh, apparently not because He could see anything good in us, right, or anything good that we would do. I mean, if, if the hearts of men and women are as depraved as Paul has said in Romans 3, that none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks in God. I mean, what, what could God possibly foresee in any human heart in the future that would make Him want to love them? No, God... And really, what's a mystery? God foreknew and foreloved us before we even existed. I love, again, how Ferguson puts this. He says, you see, He loves from eternity. He loves from eternity, and then He destines us towards eternity. That's the next word, isn't it? God, He says, predestined. Verse 29, he said in uh, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his, his son. H having set his love on us, he destines us beforehand. That's what the word means. Beforehand to be conformed to Christ-likeness. It, it means that he decided beforehand to do this. And we'll study this more closely when we get to chapter 9, but I know this word causes everyone such a great deal of consternation and worry and, and all kinds of tension and so forth, but I want to remind you that's the very opposite reason and response that Paul mentions this word. He's writing here to give us assurance of our salvation, to give us comfort in, in, in this. And, and, and I want you to know that your salvation here, and what, what Paul is telling us, is that it's more than just trusting in Jesus by faith. Yes, that's true. Yes, that is required. That's what the Scripture teaches. But Paul wants us to see the depth of this, that it goes far beyond even our response to a God who foreknew you, who foreloved you before you even responded to Christ. Ephesians 1.4 says He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. God marked out a particular destiny, 
predestined. He marked out a particular destiny for you. That's what the word means, this destiny to bring you into His family, to bring you into the likeness of Jesus Christ. You say, why do we need to know this? Why is He telling us the depth of this? Because He's reminded us there will be times when sufferings come and where persecutions come into your life where you're not even going to know what to pray for, but we can know this. We can know that the very salvation and the very purposes of God for us were formed before even the foundation of the world. That's how solid it is, church. That's how unshakable our salvation is. This is his point. What great assurance that should give us. Amen? great assurance. I don't understand how all that works, but what great assurance. It's true. He says we can know it. J.I. Packer has written an excellent book, and I would entrust and encourage you to read it. It's called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God and uh, how those two things work together. But at one point, he points out the fact that, you know, though we struggle sometimes with the tensions that this doctrine creates, that, that it, when it comes right down to it, that Christian people, all Christian people believe in the sovereignty of God and salvation, even if they might struggle or deny it to begin with. He makes this point, a couple, couple of points in this book. He says, in the first place, you give thanks to whom for your salvation? Who? We should all say that if you believe it. Who do you give thanks for in your salvation? God. God, right? He says, now why do you do that? Because you know in your heart that God was completely responsible for saving you. You didn't save yourself. He saved you. And the second way in which you acknowledge that God is sovereign in salvation is when you're praying for the conversion of others. Who are you asking for your family members and friends who don't know the Lord? Who are you asking for Him to save? Who are you praying to? God, right? God. He writes this. It's, he says, On our feet, we may have arguments, but on our knees, we're all agreed. When we're praying, when we're witnessing, we're all in agreement. Our God saves. He alone saves, church. Amen? He alone saves. Yes, there's mysteries and how all of these things work together, and they're going to remain, but there's no question in the Scriptures. Jesus is the author. He is the founder. He is the perfecter of our faith, not us. The, the third link in the the chain, if you will, is that God calls. God called, he says, verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called. This is, uh, this is that summons to believe, isn't it? Now, n there's no doubt that this call comes through the proclamation of the gospel. That's what he's called us to do, to call everyone to believe. Amen? The gospel message needs to go out to the ends of the earth. Repent and believe in the Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And, and, and that's what we might refer to as a general call. The call that goes forth in our preaching, the call that goes forth in our proclaiming of the gospel. We want everybody to hear this good news of Jesus Christ. But Paul is talking about something more specific here because who is the one doing the calling here? You can always guess God. You're going to be close to the answer, right? God. This is a... A different calling. God is calling here. This is, we could define this in different ways. This is the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This is what sometimes theologians call, though, the, an effectual calling. An effectual calling. This is a calling of God that, that when it goes out, it raises dead people to life, right? Here's a great illustration of this. We think of the story of Lazarus. You all remember that story. He dies. Jesus' friend. Jesus arrives several days later. You know, we could have stood at the tomb of Lazarus. That's if we got there. We, we, would, we, we could have stood at his tomb and called Lazarus to come out. A general call. Come out, Lazarus. We want you to come out. But Lazarus would have not come out. Not because Lazarus didn't wouldn't want to come out, but because Lazarus, a very simple fact, is what? He's dead. <laughs> He's dead. But when Jesus stood at that tomb and he said, Lazarus, come out. You understand that's not just a mere invitation, right? <laughs> it's a, an effectual calling. And Lazarus comes out of that tomb raised to life. What a beautiful truth. That's how it is when God calls a person into his salvation. That's what Paul's talking about here. He's God foreknew, foreknew us. He's predestined us. He called us into salvation and new life. Fourth, God justified Verse 30, those whom he called, he also justified. And again, Paul is not, he, he leaves out faith and repentance here, not because he doesn't believe them, because that's not the point of what he's trying to say here. He's highlighting for us God's part in all of this. And he's saying, this is where your assurance lies. God has done this. God's effective call enables those who hear it to Believe it, and those who believe, he's already told us, chapter 5, those who believe are justified by God in that moment. Now, we preached a lot on that, so we don't have to say a lot here about it. Justification is a gift. It's not by works. It's by the work of God. It's by His grace. And just to remind you, chapter 5, that justification is an act of God. You remember, that's the moment when God turns to us as sinners and He says, you are, you are now righteous in Christ. He declares us righteous. So that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Again, do you see what he's driving at here? He's saying to us, I want you to see how rock solid your salvation is. God is carrying us from the beginning to the very end. 
This is this solid foundation. This is where your assurance lies. He is working everything in your life for good, for His purposes, to bring you into His family, into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And it is so certain that nothing in your life can change this, nothing that can happen to you, that God foreknew us, God predestined us, is is the same God who called us and justified us. And beloved, this is the same God, he says, who will one day glorify us. Glorify us. That's the fifth. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's when we'll get our new glorified bodies. We'll be free from this old fallen body. That's where we're going to be free from the presence of sin. That's when we're going to be in a new heaven and a new earth for all eternity. Notice something really quickly about this, though. Paul speaks of this in the past tense, doesn't he? Just like all the others. He foreknew, that's past tense. He predestined, that's past tense. He called, he justified. He says he glorified. Paul is so certain of this that is coming The glorification, he speaks of it as though it were already accomplished. Why does he do that? Because it already has been in God's eyes. It is so certain, eternal glory is so certain that Paul can speak of this as in the past tense. Do do you see how invincible this purpose is? And providence of God is in your life, Christian. He wants you to know that this wonderful plan of salvation, it cannot fail in your life. There will be times where it will be so bad you don't even know what to pray for. These purposes will not fail. He wants us to know that this plan of salvation cannot fail. If it could fail... If it would, it would it, mean it would depend on us, but, but the fact that it won't means that it doesn't depend on us. But He has us from beginning to end. We ought to go home and take a wonderful nap this afternoon after this. Amen? What comfort, what assurance we have. We're going to sing a great hymn in response to this this morning. It's called, He Will Hold Me Fast. You know this one very well. And it speaks so much of these truths. For my Savior loves me so, He will hold me fast. He will do it, He says. So let's rejoice in these truths today. Let's praise our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. But if you're here today, by the way, and you're listening to this today, and you don't know Christ, and we are praying this morning that you are hearing this call that we talked about. What if you're hearing this call? What should you do? Here's what you do. Here's what the Scripture says. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. If you're hearing this, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And I'll be right here down front if you would like to talk more about that. If you want someone to pray for you, 
Uh, I'll be in the back after the service. Would love to talk to you more about following Jesus. Let's stand together as we pray and as we prepare to sing. Lord, we thank you for this great word. Pray that it would not bring any consternation in our hearts and lives, but rather this would bring great comfort and assurance to those who are saved. But we do pray for those who are not, that, Lord, it would bring conviction today and that you would open their eyes and help them to see the glories of your amazing love in Jesus, that they might hear your call and come to faith in him. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.